Over the years, we've opened our doors and invited some amazing people to sit and chat with us on our Scotty's couch. These are those conversations. Here, they'll share their inspiring stories, their highs and lows, and the choices that led them to where they are now. This week, recorded in July of 2019, Scotty CEO Stuart Robinson chats to our special guest, veteran Sergeant Rick Clement, about the fateful day when he stepped on an IED whilst on tour in Afghanistan. He talks about losing both his legs, as well as much of his right arm in the blast, how he's coped, and why he's fundraising for Scotty's. Grab a cuppa and have a seat on the Scotty's couch. Welcome to On The Scotty Couch, where we meet and chat with amazing people and share their inspiring stories. Uh, today, we've got Rick Clement here with us at Scotty HQ. Welcome, Rick. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Um, we're, so we're here in the warehouse at the back of the Scotty's office, and of course, it's raining, so we can hear the rain coming down on the rooftop. Um, Rick, so 16 years in the British Army, I think, joined at 16. Were you always going to be a soldier? Was that kind of what life was, was going to be? Was that all mapped out for you at that point? Um, the only thing I really knew was that I didn't want to go to college, to be honest. Um, I, I'd got decent GCSEs, so it wasn't an issue of, um, you know, not really being educated that way. But I just wanted to get out there, I think, start earning money and buy a car and things like that. So I started looking around at potential jobs and um, we had a computer program at school where you could put in a few interests and things. and it, popped out a list of uh, likely jobs and mine was like army number one, navy number two, air force number three, so that was a good signpost. Off I went to the careers office and, and that was kind of it from there. Yeah, just joined up and 16 years of age then? Yeah, yeah, just 16, so, straight from school. What's it like going into the army at 16 years old? Um, I found it very difficult at first, I must admit. Uh, I believe my section commander in training didn't think that I would make it. It was quite shy and stuff, but by the end of it, I ended up getting um, top recruits. So I certainly changed that around and just got used to it. I think in some ways, although being young, it's more difficult, it's also easier to be shaped into what they want you to be. So I think it did help in the long run. Yeah, and so you definitely recommend it to youngsters that are considering a career in the military. Give it a go. Absolutely, it taught me so much you know uh, i've got a good family and stuff behind me as well but second to them everything i've been i've sort of learned through my life has come from the military really yeah. and from there uh tours of iraq afghanistan um tell us a little bit more obviously about afghanistan and, and you know how that obviously changed your your life yeah i did um the three operational tours ireland i did three times and then iraq and afghanistan Ireland was sort of the, the back end of, of the really bad times, if you will. The only real incident we had there was the Omar bomb back in 98. Um, um, a lot of civilians were, were killed in. And that was a bit of a baptism of fire at 18 years old. But it also saw, I saw the kind of the help that we gave the, the public and helped out with casualties, things like that. And, and I also saw the real change in attitude towards the army after that. Uh, and I think that, that really showed me that we, we could change um, change those places for the better and we were doing a good job and we weren't just there to shoot and fight and things like that. Um, 
Iraq. I was there when uh, in Basra when Saddam's statue was pulled down. So that was, you know, you kind of still see it on the TV from time to time. That was a really sort of significant moment. We did lose one guy over there, um, one of our medics, a, a captain, unfortunately, in a vehicle IED. But other than that, it was more of a public order tour with uh, rioting in the city and things like that outside the banks and petrol stations. So um, again, it was you know it wasn't an easy tour, but when Afghan came around, that we knew that was going to be a different kettle of fish and um, certainly a much a much more riskier place. At that point, I was a platoon sergeant for Afghanistan, so I'm not thinking it's going to be me. I'm thinking I need to make sure I'm ready to react to if something happens to my boys. And um, I felt like we were ready. We were put together a bit last minute, my platoon, um, just the way things panned out. But we'd all gone through all, all the training, just not all together at times. We went over there and um, I think we was there about a month really and a couple of weeks of that was in, um, in in Boston in the main camp just getting the last minute training we moved out onto the um, into the forward operating bases and that's where um, we started our normal routine and uh, a normal day-to-day -day patrol ended up um, as you can see um, I was quite severely injured um, it was just uh, an early morning patrol. The platoon commander had took one team out onto a nearby uh, road or, or track, if you will, over there. And he was stopping vehicles and people to get an idea of who was passing through the area. And I took the other team out to satellite around and provide protection for them if they came under attack. And um, you kind of, when you get out there, you're taught to avoid channel routes. Um, by that, I mean uh, a bridge would be a, an extreme example of a channel route where the, uh, the Taliban and such would, would put an IED on the bridge knowing full well that you can't get across the river, so you'll cross the bridge. But there's obviously other types like path, um, footpaths and the ditches or irrigation ditches at the side of the paths and all sorts of other ones. And so it becomes a bit of a, a choice where you're going to go and which is the better route. On this particular day, there was um, a building to the right-hand side. Buildings were a definite no-go because they could be booby-trapped, doors, windows, walls, floors, roofs, pretty much everywhere. So that was obviously a definite no. There was a footpath next to the building and there was an irrigation ditch just to the left of that. Now, I've been sort of told by recent intelligence that the irrigation ditches were quite risky and they'd realised that we were using them quite a lot. So they'd become quite a target for ID. So I decided the Valor man at the front, I was confident that he could pick up anything on the path. We only needed to go about 10 to 15 meters along this path before we could hit open ground again. And that's the decision we, I made to go. Um, due to fate, luck, um, I, I, don't, I couldn't really tell you, but there was an IED buried underneath. Um, I think it was a pressure plate IED. Whether the, the, the two men in front of me, um, the Valim, which is a, a metal detector, if you will, that picks up the, the bombs, and then the guy behind him who was covering the front man, and then myself. I'm not sure if they missed it by millimetres or it was set to go off at a heavier weight because um, the commanders carry radios and extra kit and things, so you can sometimes set it off with the extra weight. But for whatever reason, I set it off. And... Um, it was really strange. It felt like um, a, a pfft to me, and that sounds really quiet, but it really did sound like that. 
in reality, it was a loud explosion. And uh, the next thing I knew, I was in the bottom of uh, a small pit, if you will, a crater. And the guys were coming to my to, to my aid. I didn't remember feeling much pain at the time, but I knew something uh, something was wrong and something had happened. The guys are then obviously giving me morphine and starting to um, treat me for bleeding and such. I think I was quite lucky that the, the heat of the blast seared a lot of the bleeding, so that certainly helped keep me alive for longer. Uh, and the guys did a fantastic job of getting to me quickly, patching me up, and then carrying me back to towards the base to a helipad. Uh, as I said earlier, that should have been my job to sort of do the nine-liner, which is the information you give back to, to call in the helicopter and tell them what they're, they're going to arrive at, basically. But we also teach that um, the next man down takes over should that happen to, to myself. And that's exactly what did. And I'm thankful to this day for the, the amazing job they did. Um, as they got me back to, to the base and we awaited the helicopter, I believe it was about nine minutes before it arrived, which was really, really quickly. Um, I remember a close friend of mine who was back in the base came out to help and I asked him if, if I'd lost my legs because I, I just knew, I guess. Um, and, and he told me the truth that they had. I was unaware of sort of all the other injuries that, that I was going to have to wake up to eventually, but um, I, was, I was definitely conscious and knowing that my legs had, had been severely injured or, or gone. The helicopter arrived and the paramedics on the back got hold of me. At this point, they're, they're supposed to um, knock you out, basically, so you're easier to treat and not riding around. Um, I became the patient from hell and refused to be knocked out. <laughs> um, People asked me what I was thinking. The only thing I can remember thinking, I wasn't sort of worried about dying or thinking, what can I tell my family or any of that. I was just thinking, just stay awake and that you're alive, you're all right. And, and I guess that's why I fought with them to not let them knock me out. Um, I remember them putting a, a mask over my face for the oxygen and I was throwing that off because it felt, just felt like it was harder to breathe with it on. And, um, so yeah, I was just being a general pain in the bum, I think, to the people that were trying to help me. But at the same time, I wasn't stopping them from doing the jobs. I was just making it a bit more difficult. And again, they did an amazing job of, of patching me up. And I was back to Bastion about another nine minutes later. So, you know, in under 20 minutes, I was back in the main camp with the surgeons. And uh, apparently they were horrified that I was still awake and um, the the people on the helicopter got a bit of a telling off because I was still conscious and uh, at that point that's where they sort of whacked me full of whatever whatever they do and uh, out I went and the, the next bit was actually the easiest bit for me I had three weeks sleep essentially uh, and woke up back in Birmingham for my family and, and friends and stuff, that was probably the worst time because they didn't know if I was ever going to wake up and in what condition I was going to be in if I woke up. I was told on the, on the flight back to the UK that I had to be resuscitated twice, so that sort of tells you how close it was. Um, but yeah, I woke up back in intensive care, back in Birmingham, and uh, my family were around me and that's where I suppose I began a long, long journey of, uh, of rehabilitation and recovery. 
four months in the hospital, that was the worst time, definitely. More so because there's only so many visiting hours and the rest of it is just time to think about everything. And of course, like all human beings, you overthink things and you presume you know the answers to things that you don't know the answer to. For example, I thought I'd never drive again, certainly never swim again. You know, so many things that I'd just never do again. And then the reality of it now is that I can do, you know, all those things and, and much, much more. And, um, but it was difficult in the hospital just trying to, trying to envision that future, I guess. I had a great family who were there for me throughout and that was a massive thing and they were helped by charities to be able to stay there with me and, um, you know, that's where I, so I suppose I first became aware of the great role that charities can, can take for myself and the families. And, um, you just sort of worked to get out of that hospital bed until you head to Headley Court, which was the, the rehabilitation centre. And once you get there, the world kind of changes because you're seeing people with similar injuries, but they're, they're rock climbing and they're, they're doing all sorts of mad things and they're, they're starting to drive around the, the place and things like that. And all of a sudden you think, ah, well, if he can do it, you know, he's a para, I'm better than him, so I'll definitely be able to do it, and things like that. And the whole regimental rivalry thing kicks in and you're there with people who've been through it, who you can talk to, the welfare staff and the physios and the gym staff and everything are geared towards getting you better. And, th and it does that massively, gives you a, a positive outlook on the future. And then it's just sort of a matter of time of, of working towards getting to where you want to be. And for me, it was always about getting my independence back. I was I went from literally having to be washed and you know going to going to the toilet in a in a bedpan on, on the on the bed and and having to be wiped afterwards. You know, which is difficult after you've been an independent man for for a long time and. But it was necessary, it just had to be done. And so then I wanted to get back out of that and be able to sit on the toilet myself. And, you know, you take it for granted, but wiping your bum yourself is, is quite a nice thing to do after you've not been able to do it, things like that. Um, you know, your own hygiene and all sorts. And, you know, now, years later, looking back, I'm in a place where I live on my own. Um, you know, cook, clean, wash, everything really. My family's still there to support me if needed, but I'm so stubborn that I don't accept that very often. And that's helped at times as well. But I'm certainly in a, you know, a great place now and it's been a long journey, but one, a worthwhile one in the end. Right, and I guess, you know, you talk about the guys when you're at Headley Court and you're looking up to, to these guys that are rock climbing and doing other things. I guess there are other guys now looking at what, what you're doing and how you're, you know, taking on life. And I guess they're, you know, they're finding that inspiring as well, which is, you know, awesome. I hope so. I'd like to think that, um, you know, just getting on with it is the way I see it for me. But you do, you know, I do my talks and things and people say to you, inspirational is a word that gets thrown at me quite a lot. And I don't really see it, but I do understand how, how it might come across that way. So as much as I don't want to admit it, I suppose, I, I do get it as well. And, and I appreciate it a lot when you see it. And one thing we find at Scotty's is, um, you know, obviously we spend a lot of time with, with families, with bereaved families. And um, they one thing they, they cry out for is that reconnection to the military. And, and what we find is when we, when we speak to the guys, 
they sometimes there are maybe feelings of guilt or they're not quite sure about approaching the family. Um, do you, do you still are you still in touch with like the, the guy the medics and the guys that that helped you when you were injured? You know, do they have you found that they've found it helpful to kind of to reconnect? Yes, absolutely. Uh, in particular, one of the medics that was on the helicopter that, that picked me up, um, she she was obviously doing that job and seeing casualties like me day in day out um, on multiple tours, and uh, she contacted me a couple of years after after. I'd, been injured and stuff and asked me questions like was it the right thing to do to save me because you know I was severely injured and was my life happy was I was I glad that I was still here and things like that and obviously all that was going around in her mind um, very quickly uh, my answer was just simply yeah I'm glad you know I'm here that's I couldn't ask for anything more and I've managed to you know get back to a, a great rewarding and, and happy life I have my difficult days, but I mean, who doesn't? You know, whether you've been injured or not, life life sometimes throws you a curveball, shall we say, and you've got to get through it. Um, but yeah, um, it was really good for her, I think, to, to reconnect with me and, and be told straight out, yes, you did an amazing job. And I'll, I can never repay her, to be honest, for, for that. And, and all the team that was on the back of there, I've been lucky to meet a few of them. But it does, it does help. Um, there's a lot of, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder and things about and people who've gone through loss of, of family members and things like that. And I do think it does help for us to, to reconnect or connect with people who've gone through similar things because only they can understand certain parts of that journey. I wouldn't pretend to understand what it feels like to have lost a, a father or, um, you know, a, a husband or, or whatever it might be. That's different to what I've been through, but I'd like to think I can also empathise with it. And there are certain similarities to the journey that I've taken, the journey that they will have to take to come through it. So yeah, reconnecting, I think, is an essential part of being able to get on with it, I think, and move past it. Definitely, and I, and I guess talking openly about any, you know, was mental health issues or whatever you know I know you've been quite proactive and you've you set up the Facebook group quick reaction friends to encourage people to kind of you know share if they're feeling a bit down and then I, I've seen myself the, the number of people that will kind of jump on that and, you know, we're here to support you and that's kind of yeah the the group was just I mean unfortunately I've been to two funerals in the past couple of months of, of soldiers who've taken their own lives and I mean, it's a difficult one because soldiers are taught not to show weakness and so they don't want to talk to people and, and admit they need help and things like that. But hopefully the group could give them a platform to be able to, to be able to open up with other soldiers that are going through similar things. Or there's people like me that are on there who have had the different journey, but I'll help as much as I can, whether that means driving 200 miles to go and have a coffee with someone or whatever it might be. And the groups, I think there's 2000 plus members now and, and there's loads of people offering help, support, advice. And then there's other people who've been able to just open up a little bit and that's been fantastic. And um, I hope I hope it continues as it does and hopefully it will help. Even I mean, even if it saves one person from taking their own life, it's a success, but hopefully it can do more than that. Definitely, yeah, it feels like we're 
we're nowhere near where we need to be at the moment, but we're, you know, things like this and moving in the right direction it seems to be more openness to kind of talk about these, these things. Now. It does. I think uh, mental health in particular, in, in life in general, for, for civilian or military is becoming, uh, or we're becoming more aware of it, that it is a thing. No more is it, are you being weak and, you know, get up, you know, man up and things like that. Because as, as common as that sort of has been in in life, because I mean, I've said it many a time, come on, man up, get on with it. But actually, we need to just be a bit more, you know, helpful and a bit more open to talking about and, and trying to get them to open up about the problems. But you, you mentioned earlier about some of the charities that, that helped you, and I know you've done a lot of fundraising for uh, a number of charities, but you, you've also been connected to Scotties and supporting Scotties Little Soldiers for some time now, um, which, which I think is amazing because, as I say, there are charities out there that have directly helped you, but for you to also give something to, to a charity that you, you, know, you don't have a direct, you know, uh, you're not a direct beneficiary of, uh, I think is pretty amazing. But what what is it that I guess first got you involved in Scotties, but also keeps keeps you coming back after all these years? The first time I became aware of Scotties was at uh, the Millie Awards, and Scotties was up for a nominee, and um, I was there because I had actually been nominated for one myself. So I was lucky enough to to see Scotties win the award and to to hear about more of what they did. And the more that I heard, the more uh, I got to speak to Nikki, and uh, I just became massively aware that, that it was a fantastic charity and just did so much good. Um, unfortunately, because of my injuries, I can't have children, but I, I've always been um, heavily involved with my nieces and nephews, and uh, I've got a few godchildren. I think people see, seem to think, uh, I'd be an alright parent, or you'd think so if, if I've been nominated as a godfather. So it's something that I've, I've missed for my life, but something that I've, I'm aware of and, and there's a big piece of my heart for, for children. And to see the massive great work that Scotty's does is fantastic. And I immediately just wanted to know more and become involved. That then obviously started the ball rolling for doing some fundraising and then attending the annual ball I've got to know more and more of, of sort of the wider Scottish family if you will I guess and um, the more I get to know the more I want to be involved that's all, all I can say really it's amazing what they do for the children I think it was a severe gap I suppose in in the charity sector that was missing and Nicky spotted that and done an amazing job with a team of of making sure that the support is there for them and uh, I love seeing uh, all the children's pies and stuff and uh, the, the smiles on the, on the children's faces and stuff like that. It's, it's wonderful and long may it continue. And as long as Scottish is going, I'll be, uh, I'll be helping and doing what I can. And well, on that subject, let's talk about the skydive then. So you've signed up to do, yeah. to take part in the, in the, in the, third, with the first Scottish jump day. So, um, tell us a little bit about that then. Yeah, I'm looking forward to doing the, the skydive. Um, I was talking with, with Nicky recently actually and saying, I think I, I've lost the, the gene that gives you fear or makes you worried about doing things. So I'm, I'm always up for, for doing anything. And I, I saw the skydive and thought, what a fantastic way of being able to kind of do something a bit, a bit more difficult, a bit out there. 
but at the same time, more importantly, raise raise some funds for Scotties. So I'm looking forward to uh, to being there. Hopefully, uh, there'll be plenty of others up for it, and uh, I'm quite happy to kick anyone out the door. Uh, well, I say kick, I might have to shove really, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be at the back shoving people out the door, making sure they do it and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's it's just the next the, the next thing on the on the line to do for Scotties, and I'm sure there'll be many more after that as well. Yeah, well, on that subject, what what does the future hold? What are you up to? What, what are your plans? Um, my immediate sort of plans. I definitely want to do another swim. A couple of years ago, I did um, the Great Manchester Swim, which is a mile in open water, and uh, I want to do the two mile thing. Um, but it'll probably be next year now with booking things and, and so so that's definitely one but um, me and Nicky have been talking for a while we need to come up with a big big challenge I think uh, something together so my brain needs to get in gear and come up with something really big and something that can raise a few thousand for Scotties as, as opposed to a few hundred here and there I think yeah. um, so I can't give you any definitive answers but I, watch this space I think is the best thing I can tell you. And uh, if anyone wants to follow your progress and like hear about any of the, these fundraising ideas or anything, are you on social media or? Uh, I'm on Facebook, yeah. so you, you can get me on there and stuff. Um, and then I'm sure Scotties will be promoting most of the things I do anyway. So get yourself on Scotty's website and have a look. Awesome. Okay, Rick. Um, thanks for coming along to talk to us today. It's really uh, inspiring, and really appreciate you making the trip over to to Scotties. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thanks Thank for having you, me. Watch the full conversation on YouTube at Scotty's TV and find out more about the charity and support us at scottyslittlesoldiers.co.uk.